Amen. Is it well with your soul? It surely is. You may be seated. It surely is. For all those who have rested completely and only in the cross of Christ, we can say whatever else may befall us in this life, it is indeed well with our soul. We're looking this morning in Acts chapter 7. I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. We are looking at the first martyr, Stephen. We are not going to go through this word by word as meticulously as I normally do other passages. We're going to just fly over the whole chapter 7. If you know me, for those of you who are with us, you know that's very unusual, but that's what we're doing today. We pick it up. This is indeed the defense that Stephen gives to the accusation which was leveled against him, as we saw last week, by the chief priests and the scribes and the religious establishment the charge that they leveled against him was that he was blaspheming God as he spoke against the temple and the holy place and as they further insinuated against the law of Moses. And so this is Stephen's response to that charge. Now before we jump in to his rebuttal, to his defense, it would behoove us just to pause for a moment and to pray and ask God to help us and for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes as we jump into the text this morning. So, with that, would you please just bow with me as we ask God's help? Oh, Lord, we do ask your help. We know how significant this is, according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There is more space and more time given to this particular sermon, this particular legal defense here by Stephen, than anywhere else in the book of Acts. We know that this is crucial to you, our God. You are wanting to make a point you're wanting it to be made to Israel, to the Jews. And undoubtedly, you want us to catch it as well. And so we pray, Father, this morning, that as we look at Stephen's reply, that you would drive home into our hearts that you are a God not bound by any structure or any religious service or any institution, but that you are a free God omnipotent, powerful, wandering and roaming wherever you choose in all the earth. Indeed, you are sovereign. Help us this morning, Lord, as we look at Stephen's speech to be reminded and reassured that you are not preoccupied with so many other things, that you do not indeed walk intimately and closely with your people wherever you may guide them. We pray you'd Show us this this morning by your spirit, through your word, in Christ's name. Amen. Looking back at chapter 6 just briefly, they say at the tail end of verse 11, we have heard him, referencing, referencing Stephen, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And it says in verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. And they said of false witnesses who said, quote, this man never ceases. He won't stop. He won't give it a rest. In the Greek, it's in the emphatic. They're making the claim that this guy just keeps talking and talking and talking, and he won't stop talking. And the problem that they have is what he is talking about. They consider it to be blasphemy against God. And it's, so verse 13 says, they set up false witnesses who said, they never, he never ceases to speak words against this holy place referencing the temple, and against the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, referencing the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And in chapter 7, the high priest stands upon hearing that the indictment read out, and he has one simple question. His question is, are these things so? Imagine yourself to be Stephen in that moment. They just want you to say yes or no. If you say no, that's not true. Well, you've been saying this for a long time, and out of faithfulness for Christ, to Christ, you know, this is what Christ has been saying all throughout his earthly ministry. And we looked at that in depth last week. So I am not guilty, but in actual point of fact, he is guilty. But he's not guilty in the sense that they want him to be guilty. He has engaged in these actions. But the real foundation behind their charge is that he is guilty of blasphemy through doing these actions. This is the fallacy, if you'll bear with me for just a moment, the fallacy, and I've given my own name to it, the fallacy of the misidentified horse. Now, for those of you who've studied logic or rhetoric, you might know it more formally according to its formal designation, the fallacy of assuming the antecedent or its corollary, the fallacy of denying the antecedent. I prefer to think of it as the fallacy of the misidentified horse. In formal logic, it says, if a premise, P, is true, then logically a conclusion such as Q will follow. That's the syllogism. If P, then Q. Now, you have Q. If you see Q, if you identify Q running around out there in the wild, then you can conclude, you can deduce, if Q exists because P must exist to get to Q. If you find Q, therefore, P is also true. All of you are looking at me like, whoa, Loic, I have no idea what you're saying right now. Let me break it down for you. Assume you have a cat, okay? And this cat has four legs, which is fairly standard. And so you're teaching your child how to identify a cat. And you tell your child, well, a cat has a little tail that kind of whisks back and forth. And he's got four legs, and he's furry, and he's got little pointy ears. Your child says, okay. That's great. So whenever I find a creature that has four legs and a tail, that creature must be a cat. Right? The problem with that is that there are lots of creatures that have four legs and a tail that are not, in point of fact, a cat. And this can happen one of several ways. Say you have a cat that has been in some horrific accident and has had a leg chopped off, and your child stumbles upon it as it's sitting in a grassy yard somewhere, and it's got all its legs supposedly curled up underneath it. Your child sees the cat and says to himself, there's a cat. Ergo, he must or she must have four legs, only to watch the cat stand up with only three legs. Oh, whoa, I was wrong in my conclusion. Or you see a creature that has four legs and is a cat, or has four legs and a tail, and you conclude four legs and a tail, check, 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 must be a cat. Only problem is it's a dog, not actually a cat. The reason I prefer to think of this as the fallacy of the misidentified horse is because when I really began to appreciate the significance of this mistake that we often make in our thinking was when I was driving down the freeway one time with my daughter, Chloe. She was maybe four, maybe three or four years of age at the time, and she loved horses, just loved them. 
We had a neighbor who lived, at this time we were living in Rayleigh, we had a neighbor who lived across the back fence from us. And one of my daughter's favorite activities to do in the afternoon was to go down to the back fence with an apple or a carrot and feed it to my neighbor's horse. And I, I hope my neighbor was okay with this because we had never actually got permission. We were just feeding apples every day to this animal. And one day we're driving down the road and my daughter looks out the window and says to me, look, dad, a horse. And of course, I'm driving along and I look. I don't see any horse. I'm like, where, Chloe? Look, dad, look, right there, a horse. And I look again, I don't see anything. And I see a field. And in that field, I just see a cow, one cow. I say, Chloe, is that the horse you're talking about? Yeah, dad, that's the horse. Now, a cow has the same basic shape as a horse, kind of, sort of. Definitely not as fleet of foot, per se. But basically, it's an oblong-shaped body with four legs and a head. And so to a three- or a four-year-old who hasn't learned the nuances or learned the proper ways to identify, and not only to identify, but to distinguish between different categories of animals, a cow looks very much like a horse. The problem isn't that she's not learned what a horse looks like. The problem is that she hasn't learned more closely what a horse looks like and how to distinguish those truly unique aspects of a horse from that of a cow. Now, believe it or not, that's the same mistake that's being made here by Israel, by the religious establishment. Here's the argument. Follow me closely. God chose us as a people. And on the basis of his choice of us as a people, he gave us a bunch of laws to follow. Choice, Laws And a part of those laws, among, um, um, in the midst of keeping those laws, one of the things we do is we worship him at a temple. So choice, laws, temple. That's the argument. We got the temple. We have the conclusion. We have the cue. Therefore, the pre- previous antecedent must also be true. Because we can look and we can see and we can point at it, there's a temple here. Because temple then the previous premises which lead to that conclusion must also be true. We can see the temple. We know God gave us this temple. Therefore, it must be true that we are the true keepers of the law of Moses. And because we are the true keepers of the law of Moses, it must also be equally true that God has chosen us. Therefore, we are right, Stephen, and your charge is wrong. Now, so many scholars look at Stephen's reply and they think it's just this ramble, jumbling, ongoing sort of, you know, spiel of history that has nothing to do with the charge that they're making against him. But the only way you can accept that conclusion that Stephen is just rambling is if you think he is a complete idiot, which we can't accept because the scripture says he was full of the spirit and full of wisdom. He knows he's going to get stoned, most likely, at the end of this sermon. Would you not make the best possible defense that you could? Would you not seek to persuade and influence your audience in order to spare your life, if you could? All of the scholars and all of the different commentators who look at this speech and say, Stephen is just giving some rambling, jumbled mess of historical narrative, and who knows what he's talking about, These are people who have not thoroughly thought through the argument that he's making 
because they have not taken the time to consider the allegations which are placed against him, and more importantly, they haven't thought of the logic that underpins those allegations. This is unfortunately one of the mistakes of chapter numbers and verse numbers. Don't misunderstand me. We wouldn't be able to find anything if we didn't have a chapter and a verse number to refer to, but sometimes we think, okay, chapter 7, brand new thing. We start here in chapter 7 and we look. But what we always have to remind ourselves is whatever's happening here in chapter 7 in historical narrative is built upon what came at the end of chapter 6. So again, bear with me. We're right because we have the temple. Temple means we're keeping God's law. We're keeping God's law, which means God chooses us. He likes us. We're right as a result of that. Now listen to Stephen's response. We're going to go quickly through these. Verse 2, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Verse 5, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Now, I want to just stop you right there. He gave him no inheritance. He said, I want you to go to a land that I will show you, and I promise I'm going to give you this land. And then it says he didn't give him even a foot's length worth of title to any section of this property. But he makes him a promise. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you this land to your descendants, to your offspring after you. Stephen is very subtly implying something. The Jews look at Jerusalem as their homeland. He even says that Abraham came to this land where you are now living. He implies that this is their homeland. He is referencing the area where this temple is built, this sacred plot of ground right in the middle of Jerusalem, the sacred city, the city that David came and ruled over. This is all theirs. It's been given to them. But what Stephen is saying is, go back to the beginning. Our first forefather, Abraham, he's not from here. He's from somewhere else. And in order to come here, he had to leave the place where he was. God had to guide him here. What Stephen is trying to say to them is, number one, the God that you and I worship, he is a pilgrim God. He is a wandering God. He is a God that calls and guides Abraham. Abraham goes on a pilgrimage. Abraham goes away from his home, and God walks with Abraham. He makes promises to Abraham, but he makes it very clear that Abraham will not be the one to see the fulfillment of those promises. So number one, God is a God on the march. This is essentially what Stephen is saying. Number two, there's a promise of land or a promise of rest, but that promise is only realized after the journey. It's only after we're done journeying that we have any hope of inheriting the promise to support the idea that God is a pilgrim God and his people walk with him in a pilgrim way. Now, the next passage that he jumps into, he makes that statement, and and I just want to make this little historical note for you. Maybe you write this in the margin of your Bible. Abraham entered Canaan in the year 2190 B.C. 
God covenanted together with Abraham, gives him the covenant of circumcision. This is in 2180 B.C. Again, this idea of covenant is bound up in walking with God. Just note that. Next person we come to, we look at Joseph. It says there in verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Now, Joseph is one of the descendants of Abraham. Abraham goes on to have Isaac and Isaac, Jacob, and so forth and so on. Jacob has the 12 patriarchs. Amongst these is Joseph, okay? They don't like his, their brother. He's having these visions. He's having these dreams. Clearly, God is speaking to him. And let's not sell it short. Joseph, if you'll recall, he's a bit arrogant about it in terms of bragging about it. They don't like this kid, this upstart, you know, talking about all these dreams and visions he's having. They decide to reject him and to sell him into slavery. So verse 9 says, The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And it goes on to say in verse 10, God rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in case you didn't notice this, who made him ruler over all uh, Egypt, in case you have missed the point that we're talking about Egypt here, and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all, notice this, Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. Verse 12, but when Jacob heard that there was grain... In Egypt, you hear that again, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on their second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And as you're studying this particular passage, just you can't escape it. He wants to hammer home this point. There was in that time a great famine that came on the world, and salvation originated not from Canaan, not from the holy city, not from where Jerusalem was. Not from the land that had been promised to our forefathers. No, salvation came from Egypt, where Joseph was living in Egypt, where Joseph was serving Pharaoh, Pharaoh, in case you didn't notice, who was the king of Egypt. And this is a rhetorical device that Stephen is hammering over and over again, in case you're not hearing him. Egypt, 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 the land of the false gods, the land where God God judged the nation of Egypt through multiple plagues and multiple afflictions. And his point in all that is to say that Joseph was sold into slavery, and we don't have to rehash the main purpose of it. He just touches on it briefly. Joseph then is gone into exile, away from the promised land, away from where his brothers and his father live. He goes to a far country, Egypt, on a forced pilgrimage, but the promise is still true. God is with Joseph and using Joseph through this exile or pilgrimage to bring about salvation and deliverance for all the world from Egypt not from Canaan. That's point number two. So if we could start to put titles on these things, I would say point number one is that our God is a pilgrimaging God, and he raised up Abraham through pilgrimage. He promised pilgrimage would be a part of it, walking with him. And Joseph, we find that promises are fulfilled through his pilgrimage. And then we come to Moses, a leader who is himself prepared to lead God's people through pilgrimage. Picking it up in verse 17. At that time, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. God predicted all of this. He foretold all of this to Abraham hundreds of years before. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Verse 19, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and as the scripture says, he was beautiful in God's sight. 
God looked at Moses and loved him and cherished him and chose him for the task to which he would appoint him. God chooses Moses to be his leader for his people, to lead them out of slavery, out of exile, out of captivity in Egypt, back to the promised land. Moses will lead his people on pilgrimage, a journey. Notice that. And it goes on from there. In verse 30, when 40 years have passed, of course, he tries to deliver them. He gets into this fight with this Egyptian slave taskmaster. His brothers reject him. He flees into the wilderness of Midian. And as it says in verse 30, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of a fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. Verse 32, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and he didn't dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now notice that. The Jews' argument against Stephen is that he is speaking against the holy place, the place of the temple, the place in Jerusalem. And yet Stephen is careful to recite this passage from Exodus chapter 3 in which Moses encounters Yahweh, and Yahweh says, where you are now is holy ground. Where is he? He's not in Jerusalem. He's in the wilderness of Midian. He's far from Jerusalem, guys. Take off your sandals for the place where you are now standing is holy ground. We learn that all of the earth belongs to the Lord, that he is a pilgrimage God, that he calls his people onto journeys of faith. And wherever he goes, wherever he wanders to, he is holy, and therefore wherever he is, that place is also holy holy. Now, this is not boding well for the argument for the temple at this point. We're really starting to undercut some of the presuppositions that the Jews are relying upon to assert their correctness, that the temple is a necessity. So he goes on, verse 35, this Moses, whom they rejected, remember that guy that stood on holy ground in the land of Midian? Our forefathers rejected him. Guess what? There's another that's been rejected. This Moses whom they rejected said, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Oh, the guy that you rejected, the guy that you didn't listen to, he said there would be another like him. And you know where he's going with this. Jesus will also be rejected. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Now, I just want to mark a couple of dates for you here, if you're keeping track. Joseph goes down into slavery in Egypt. He is sold by his brothers into slavery somewhere around 1898 B.C. Moses 
flees into the wilderness of Midian somewhere around 1485, 1487. Moses leads, Moses is commissioned by God to lead his people out of captivity somewhere around 1447. And when he goes up onto the mountain to receive living oracles from the Lord, he receives these oracles sometime around 1446. Jump down with me now and look at this, this last little section in chapter 44. He says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Now, what Stephen has just said is that we did worship God by means of sacrifice. There was a tent of meeting, a tabernacle, but it was a tent. It was designed and built for the very purpose of being deconstructed, packed up, and moved around. Now, that's an important point for someone who is so passionate about the structure of the temple. Verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked, notice this, David asked God if he could build a dwelling place for him. God didn't come to David and say, hey, I want you to do this for me. David said to the Lord, I want to build a stone structure temple for you. And yet David was denied. It was his son Solomon after him. Verse 47, it was Solomon who built the house for him. And in case you're wondering on these dates, 1445 was the construction of the tabernacle. And it wasn't until 966 that the temple construction began and it wasn't until 959 that Solomon completed the temple. Now you're probably wondering what's the deal with all these dates? These dates would have just been understood by the Jews. They're not so well known to you and me today but if you're doing the math from 2190 BC to 959 BC We're talking about 1,200 years of God walking with his people, performing works of salvation and miraculous deliverance, blessing them, speaking to them, giving scripture, guiding them, and being worshipped by them with no temple. Hear it again. Over 1,200 years of covenant walking together God faithful to his people, his people constantly rebelling against him, but in covenant relationship, 1,200 years with no temple. If the temple is essential, if we are not worshiping God properly with no temple, then what did all of those other people, including the biggest names in our history, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, what were these guys doing? Do you begin to see the beauty and the symmetry of Stephen's argument? The temple is not where God lives. And in order to prove that point, he's going to quote to you at the very end from Isaiah 66. Drop down to verse 48. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophets say in Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? 
did not my hands make all these things? And of course at this, they fly into a rage. He begins to accuse them. They're saying he's blaspheming the Lord and his response is, you're the stiff-necked ones. You're the ones who murdered Jesus. You're the ones who killed Christ. As we reflect on this passage, there's a couple of things I just want us to note. You and I live in a time here in North American, Western civilization, uh, North American evangelicalism. We live in a time in which our ideas of what it means to walk faithfully with God are radically skewed and influenced by the culture around us. Don't make any mistake. I thank God for the conveniences that we enjoy today. If it's warm in my house, it gets up to 22, 23 degrees warmer than the weatherman predicted, I can go and I can turn the air conditioner on. If it's hot in my, if it's cold in my house, if it's cooler than what the weatherman predicted, I can go and I can turn my furnace on. If I'm hungry, I can jump into my vehicle and travel a distance that in foregone days would have required weeks. And I can cover that same distance in just a few minutes. And I can get in line behind a bunch of other vehicles at a drive through window. And I can order any number of different food items off of the menu and have it cooked, prepared, and given to me within about three to five minutes. In fact, my the conveniences that you and I enjoy are so abundant that if we wait longer than three to five minutes at a drive-thru, we start to get irritated. This is taking too long. I want my food so I can drive down the highway again, covering vast distances, which our ancestors couldn't do in a month, while eating a burger that was cooked and prepared for me inside of three minutes, a meal which in previous generations would have taken hours to prepare. And if I can't get it in three minutes, I'm angry. Now that actually has translated over into our spiritual walk. And you may not have noticed this, but at the very beginning, God says to Abraham, this is going to take a long time. It's going to be 400 years. Your, your people after you are going to go into slavery, but I'm going to rescue them. And even beyond that, it's going to take years and years, centuries millennia before salvation comes. When we think of our walk with Christ, we're having a struggle. We feel a little down. We want to come to church on Sunday. We want to sing a couple of hymns, clap our hands, sit down, have a short, quick sound bite of a sermon that's going to hit all of our buttons, reassure us, make us feel better, and the preacher better not go longer than 30 minutes because i got to go to the drive-thru, and I, they can do it in three and a half minutes. You laugh. But understand the text here. A man is on trial for his life. The argument is that we have to stay put in order to worship God in this holy place. And he's saying, no, the God that we worship is a pilgrimaging God. He is a God that calls us into journey. He calls us to walk with him. And oh, by the way, people have been walking with him for thousands of years before there was a temple. And as he tells that story, you can't help but notice, as he alludes to it over and over again, the covenant of circumcision, the law of Moses, this man whom you thrust aside and said, let's make idols for ourselves and asked Aaron to build you a golden calf. All of the covenant responsibilities that I have not touched on, all of this is to be understood as God calling his people to live not minute by minute, and if I don't get it satisfied right now in three and a half minutes, I'm out. 
wrong. What God is calling for is long obedience, long, persistent, faithful obedience over time in the same direction, holding on to God while waiting for the promises not to be realized and trusting him and growing more and more strong and confident in your faith in God the longer those promises and their fulfillment are withheld. We don't have the stomach for that because of the remarkable and amazing advancements we have made in our culture and our society of instant gratification and immediate convenience. Church, we cannot allow the way of the world and all of the benefits of modern technology and all of the speed and expediency of instantaneous communication to govern the slow and steady and methodical process that God employs when he wants to grow our hearts. We need to learn patience and long-suffering. It shows up often in the narratives and the stories that we write for ourselves. When I was younger, I see the gray-haired looking at me saying, you're still pretty young, Clay Camp. I know, I know. It's all relative, but hey, bear with me. When I was younger than I am now, I said to myself, I'm going to go do great things for God. I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to preach to the millions. God is going to use me to launch revival. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to read my Bible every day. And God will use me because I will be true to him. And I heard it over and over again. Go to Bible college. Go to seminary. Preachers come to preach at chapel. Routinely will say things along the lines of, you know what? God is just looking for one man who's truly and fully sold out to him. The world has not yet seen what the Lord can do because there is no man truly and fully sold out to him. And the charge would be made, give yourselves, boys, over and over again, prayer, Bible study, reading, fasting, going to church, being involved in Bible studies, all these things. And man, we were working hard for it, a handful of us. You know what I come to realize? I'm so sold on this big vast, amazing picture of how God is going to be glorified and I'm going to preach to millions of people and travel the world and be this famous person like Billy Graham. That Mary Jo Carter, lady sitting in the pew next to me at church, at Cedar Heights Baptist Church, who's 82 years old, she needs her refrigerator moved. I want to go and preach to the masses, but God's calling me to go help my sister move her refrigerator. I lean to myself, I want to write books. I want to be a household name, a household name theologian like John Piper, one of these other guys. And I want to be well read. And God says, I want you to go mow the back alley behind the church because it's overgrown with weeds. And see, my story is that I'm great. And because I'm great, God is great. Do you know whose story that is? That's the religious establishment story. We built a temple. It looks spectacular. We're great for it. And because we're great, that makes God great. 
And Stephen's response to that is, no, God was always great. And what makes his people great is that they will walk with him. Even to places of absolute obscurity. I mean, think about these characters, guys. Abraham. He's 100 years old. He's supposed to give birth to a child. From that one child, God is going to raise up a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. And he's thinking to himself, I am so old. How will I ever do it? You won't. God will. Or consider Joseph. I get these visions and these dreams which pretend the future. I have the ability to prophesy. I'm going to be a huge blessing to my family, and I'm going to brag about this to my brothers who were a little less than enthusiastic about that and sold you into slavery. And now your every waking moment is in a prison cell serving in Egypt, a land far removed from the promised land. Will you write books? Will you help anyone? Will you just spend out the rest of your days doing hard labor? And would God use that at all? You got to think he wrestled with these ideas. Or consider Moses. Yes, I have privilege. I have status. I was raised in Pharaoh's house. I've got all the education. I've got all the book learning. Here it is. I'm going to rescue my people. He even sensed that that was, in fact, the call of God on his life. He goes out. He murders an Egyptian slave driver, and his brothers reject him and said, who are you, man? And he flees into the land of Midian for 40 years in the wilderness until God calls him back. The story is not, I'm great, And that makes God great. If that's you, you are loading yourself down with burdens that your body can't carry, that your soul cannot hold. You're trying to write checks that will never be cashed. And you're going to kill yourself trying to make good on it. If your story is, God is great, and I'm just going to follow him humbly day by day. And whatever he has for me today is all that I need to worry about. If that's your story, it's a much easier story to follow. And you know what? God doesn't need you to make him glorious anyway. So you're surprised when he uses you to make his name famous. And it's a wonderful joy when you encounter it. You think on this guy, Stephen. He's a gifted preacher. I mean, they cannot argue with him. He picks apart their arguments. He argues from the word. His his ability to preach the scriptures are phenomenal. We don't see him making too many converts here. For all we know, this is his swan song. And he thinks it too, probably. He knows this is the end of the road for him. And he'll die. He'll be stoned at the end of this speech. What Luke wants you to notice, turn with me to verse 58. Stephen argues that the gospel is to go forth because the God we follow is a pilgrim God and he no longer is restricted. He was never restricted to a temple. And our greatness in building that temple has no bearing on the greatness of God. They will shut their ears and gnash their teeth and rush at him and stone him. And Stephen will die a martyr, the first martyr of the church. Was it worth anything? 
do we take a simple pleasure in just telling the truth and trusting it into the Lord's hands? Or do we need to see how God uses our story to finish his story? Because Stephen didn't die knowing how God would use his story. But God knew how it was going to go. And Luke wants to point that out to us. Verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. The end. No further word there in chapter 7. And if this guy were to never make an appearance anywhere else in the book of Acts, you would think it was the strangest thing for Luke to mention this fellow. But we'll encounter him in due time. You learn as you read through the book of Acts, this fellow Saul was a trained Pharisee, probably the most exceptional theologian and academic of his generation, having been taught at the feet of the legendary Gamaliel from a city of some standing within the Roman Empire, Tarsus. And this fellow, called Saul, that's his Hebrew name, would go on to take the name Paul. And he would be used of God to launch three different missionary journeys, the greatest church planting movement of the first century. Indeed, it would be his efforts that would single-handedly almost drive the gospel into southern Europe. Church planting everywhere he went, enduring beatings, enduring shipwrecks, enduring stonings, And yet for all that, he would keep preaching. He would write more than half of our New Testament. He would live a life of unparalleled, unparalleled proclamation of the gospel. And though we don't trace his conversion by any means right here, you cannot help but wonder, as he was sitting there watching over the garments of his fellow brothers, his fellow Jews, as they went to stone Stephen, you can't help but wonder, this man with an analytical mind like no other, sitting here thinking about the argument, we are right because we have the temple. And this Stephen just made the case compellingly, convincingly. There are a lot of people without any temple who are still right in worshiping God. It's about walking with him in faithfulness. As Stephen died not knowing whether or not his sermon did any good, but Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he gives more time and attention to this, and we find right out of the gate, as soon as this sermon is preached, the missionary efforts of the church to go beyond Jerusalem take off with zeal. Church, God calls you to a pilgrimage. He calls you to a journey. It doesn't mean you have to go to a faraway place or leave Kamloops to go to somewhere on the far reaches of the world, though God may indeed call you to that. But he calls you to hold his hand, to walk with him, and to be faithful to proclaiming his forgiveness and his grace right here, right now, And if you never reach anyone, if you go to your grave believing you accomplished nothing, you're not understanding that you walked with the Lord, which was to accomplish all that you were ever supposed to. Pilgrimage, my friends. Journey with the Father. Let's pray. Father, 
we ask, Lord, this morning, that as we have looked at your word, as we have briefly skyrocketed over this incredible sermon that Stephen gave, that you would remind us once again that you are a God that is always on the move, always on the march, always going forth victoriously and gloriously into the world to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of salvation. Father, help us to rejoice in you and to join with you proclaiming that gospel, not as a means of making ourselves great, not as the object from which we derive our worth. Lord, let us be your sons and daughters and let that gospel proclamation come not in order to secure our place with you, but as we walk hand in hand with you. We pray you do this, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.